Our New Testament lesson is found in Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest who is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities And I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, this morning we confess that in you we live and we move and we have our being. And in our Lord Jesus Christ, you created all things, and all things are upheld by him, even this day. And so we come as your dependent people, and we come dependent also upon your word of grace. Pure words that you speak, refined like silver seven times that are trustworthy and good. And Lord, we ask that we would hear that word today from all that you have given us in your word. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants listening. Amen. As a student at Furman University, several friends and I developed a plan to hike large portions of the Appalachian Trail. This was to cover sections in Georgia, North Carolina, and Southern Virginia. We were not going to do so continuously, but rather to take that section by section as we could on weekends and breaks. But you can imagine part of that plan... The major bulk of the work was going to be done on our summer break. Normally, we could devote more extended time to hiking at that point. We would take a week to to 10 days. After our junior year that summer, we had a particularly aggressive schedule because we had fallen behind. And so we were going to handle 
the arduous section of the Great Smoky Mountains. We had a, a kind of audacious goal, and we launched, but by the second day, we were in a torrential downpour. We kept hoping it would stop, but it didn't. The trails actually transformed into small rivers, and we were walking in three to four inches of water that was racing downhill at us, and then happening to walk downhill in that same deluge. Everything was wet, and I mean everything. There was nothing to dry, and we had no ability to dry anything. We then ran into a fellow hiker who had a radio, and he shared some grim news with us. (laughs) It was going to get worse. We had eight days in front of us, and there was no stopping the rain. It was actually going to carry on through the remainder of the week. This prompted some deliberation. Uh, That quickly came to a close when the critical question was asked. One of my friends asked, what are we doing? (laughs) Why are we even considering keeping on with this? Why would we move ahead? The answer was clear that for the very first time, we were going to pull out and call my friend's mom to come get us. (laughs) We were going home defeated. It wasn't worth it. We were going to quit despite our, our big goals. We were miserable, and the future actually had no better prospects. And friends, this is the psychology of quitting. It's when we're miserable, when we're experiencing some discomfort, we've been inconvenienced, and then when we look to the future, we can't see anything different or anything better. And that is the dynamic that was unfolding in this first century church. We don't know exactly where it was located, but what we do know is that they were experiencing some discomfort. They were being inconvenienced because of their faith in Jesus. And then some were then contemplating a return to Judaism, where they could have protection of Roman religious laws. Or perhaps they were going to return to a form of Christianity that melded Judaism and Christianity together. Whatever the case Our letter here makes it clear that they were departing from Jesus. They were going to quit him. There was too much discomfort. They had been inconvenienced. And what we find in chapters 8 through 10 in the book of Hebrews is an extended argument about why not to quit Jesus. We have here an argument that explains the benefits that actually should encourage and buoy us in the middle of the challenges. Our chapter today, in chapter 8, it follows the argument of chapter 7, where in 7 we read of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And chapter 8 carries on that language of us having a high priest who is at the right hand of God. He sat down after his great victory. And the argument advances that because we have a high priest who is unlike the former priest. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But now, because we have this new priest, we also are the heirs of a new covenant. And it is this covenant that we are told is better than the old covenant. It's better not because it's completely different. The old covenant was filled with grace as well. 
But the new covenant fulfills and completes and improves on the human side of the covenant that was faulty under Moses. What we learn in verse 8 is that the fault of the old covenant was with them, the preacher says. With them, with Israel, the sinful and broken covenant partner of God. This is where the fault was. And so God promises a day. And we find a long quotation from Jeremiah 31 in verses 8 through 13 here in chapter 8. Long quotation from Jeremiah 31 in which God has promised a day when he will send that new covenant. And please note that this is not some renegotiation that we have entered into with God. It's not a bargain that we strike with him in which we promise to do better. But note the emphasis, I will establish, I will make. It is the divine initiative. It is God coming down. It is God appealing to us in all of our weakness, saying that he will come and help the helpless by making a new covenant with us. It's unilateral in that sense of God coming to us and swearing a new covenant. And in verses 8 through 13, what we find are the benefits that are detailed to us. These benefits are listed in order to encourage us in the reasons as to why we should stick with Jesus. Because this is the plain and simple truth. You see, just like those Christians in the early first century who had pressures and inconveniences due to following Jesus, we also share those. We have various pressures. We have discouragements. We have trials and we have temptations And these all tempt us to quit Jesus as well. We too can ask the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And what we have in chapter 8 is an argument from those benefits that we need to consider and contemplate the benefits that God gives to us freely in Jesus Christ to know all that is ours in him. To answer, yes, it is worth it. There's three benefits that are promised here. We find that there's a promise of empowerment from God. Find that there's a second promise, though, that also this, that God would commune with us, that we would share communion with him. And also there's a promise of forgiveness by God. So empowerment from God, communion with God, and forgiveness by God. We'll consider each this morning. First, We are empowered by God. This is his promise to us in the new covenant. If you follow with me in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is the first promise that God makes because in the old covenant, they were given the gift of the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and all else that Moses revealed. But this law became a source of curse for Israel. It was something external that also condemned them, that they found themselves in their sinful capacities, unable to walk in the law, that despite the fact that God had redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt and lavished grace upon them, they turned away from him. In Numbers 13 and 14, we find the epic account of that turning away. 
And it looked like two things. The first was after the spies had been sent into the land, the reports came back that the people in the land were big and some of the spies were scared. Caleb was not, but the people collapsed. And they said, it'd be better for us to go back to Egypt. This God and Moses, his prophet, has forsaken us. This is a dead end. And so there was a collapse of faith, a failure to trust God. And then what we find in the next chapter is after they've been reproved for this, is that there is then a sinful overexertion. They decide to actually go up into the land. But Moses had told them not to. They were not to go. They were not to fight. But they attempted to make up for where they had been lacking before. And this is the picture of sinful humanity. Sometimes coming up short in unbelief and sometimes going too far past the word of God in overexertion. Both are trespassing what God would want for us. And so what we find in the new covenant is that God promises to do something for human beings because of our incapacity to walk with him. That he would write his law on our heart. That it would not be something external that condemns us. But now that the law, by the Spirit of God, would be internal and become a source of delight. That the law is actually a blueprint. Not when we use it to try to earn favor with God, but when we understand that the law reveals to us the righteous will of God and what it looks like to flourish as a human being, to love him and to love our neighbor. That this is the source of delight for us. And this is what God has now done in the new covenant. He's written it on the heart. He brings this change about in us. Now, 20 years ago, when Melissa and I were first married, we entered into this negotiation of what movies we would watch. She was always a fan and always very supportive of watching an action movie. And that was typically what I desired to watch. But she also was introducing me to a new genre, the chick flick. It was absolutely new. I had no real intense interest in it. But because I was trying to be a good husband as best I could, I watched some of these chick flicks. And over time, she would ask me, well, what, would you like to watch a movie tonight? Sure. What would you like to watch? Well, what, what about Hitch? <laughs> what about You've Got Mail? The Proposal. We could go on. And you see what happened to me. <laughs> 20 years later, I can say, yes, I enjoy a good chick flick. <laughs> They're a delight to me. I love them because I love my wife, and she changed my appetite. She taught me something new. She taught me how to appreciate something. And friends, in the New Covenant, this is what God does. He writes a law on your heart, and he teaches you to delight in it. It is one of the benefits that improves on the failures that Israel experienced. That this is what God has done for us. And he's changing us and working us and teaching us to love these things. This is the benefit that he has for us. The second benefit we find, though, is that we're granted also a communion with God. If you follow with me in the second half of verse 10 through verse 11. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's, of course, speaking of the final consummation there, where the knowledge of God is thorough inside of the covenant community, from the least to the greatest. We live in expectation of that, and we also ask God to make it true among us today. But his promise is that he would be their God, they would be his people, and that he will grant us the knowledge of him. And as we work through the book of Hebrews, it's critical for us to recognize the transition that's taking place here. For we've spoken of the high priest and his once-for-all offering in which he cancels the condemnation that our sins are due and they deserve. Jesus does absolve our guilt as a high priest. But he's not a dead Savior. He's a living Savior. And he is now at the right hand of God where he intercedes for us. Please note in the first verse of chapter 8, we have a high priest. He is a living and he is alive today and he intercedes for you today. And Jesus doesn't just absolve guilt Jesus actually opens up for us a new relationship with God that he is the means through which we then walk with God. He's opening communion with God to us because he is the one who intercedes on our behalf. So yes, he absolves our guilt. But also what he does is this absolution opens up the way for relationship and communion, that we come into fellowship with the Son, to share the Son's fellowship with the Father. This is the design of the Christian life. This is what forgiveness is about, is it delivers us into this new freedom of relationship. And in communion, we gain a vast variety of benefits. We can turn to God for guidance. When we're lost and we don't understand our way, we can ask him to lead our steps and we read his word and we receive instruction. In communion, we seek God for comfort in our failures. We can go to him and confess our sins and we can look to him for that absolution that we so desperately need. It's part of communing with him. In communion, we can give thanks to God for all that he lavishes on us, the things that are so undeserved in our lives that we rejoice in the good things that he gives. In communion, we look to him for help in our weaknesses because we all know that we're dependent and we're weak and we know our sinful proclivities and we can ask God for assistance. In communion, we ask him to establish the work of our hands. Yes, those things that we go about doing six days of the week, whether it's in the workplace or raising children in the home. When we commune with God, we come to him and ask him to bless and to use the work and all the labors and the hours and what can often seem like meaningless toil. We ask him to take all of that and do something with it. That's part of communing with God as well. And in communion, we ask God to renew us and to strengthen us. 
that he would satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love. That he would do that day by day. And that dependent creatures would be upheld in all their frailty. In all the fragility of our lives that we would be upheld by his love. That's what Jesus, in being a high priest, opens to you. A life of walking with God. A life of dependence, of living in the knowledge of God. Of carrying on with him, abiding in him. And the practical question for each one of us is, are we taking up that benefit? Are we taking up what Jesus has won for us, what he has opened to us, that in and through him we go to God, relating to him? Are you walking with him in this way? Take up that benefit. That's what he has won when he sat down at God's right hand. Final benefit that we receive, though, in this promise of a new covenant, you find in verse 12. We are guaranteed the removal of our sins. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's a remarkable thing to be told that God will not remember your sins. It's remarkable because you and I, to the extent of our knowledge, remember them quite well. Oftentimes, our lives are marked by the remembrance of our faults and of our failures. One of my close friends in Washington, who became a Christian in the early days of our church plant, after his conversion, he was fond of saying to me, well, you know, Chuck, I'm not one of those super Christians. What he meant by that, he was referring to his past, his background. It was a rather rough one, pretty sordid. And he had met Jesus in a surprising way. He converted and came to a new knowledge of him. And when he came to that new knowledge, he still dealt with some of the guilt and some of the shame from his background. And so he felt like he was always a second-class citizen. He didn't quite belong in the church. And friends, it was the great privilege to say, this is not the gospel. This is not how God relates to you. That what God says is he will remember your sins no more. And what God says is true. It's a pure word. It's a true word. What God says he will forget, he does forget. That he removes it. That he's canceled your condemnation that you justly deserve. And he's canceled it because he exhausted that condemnation at the cross of Jesus. And Jesus, because he was a pure offering, was raised from the dead. And he's at God's right hand. And he intercedes there for you even now. Friends, in all of our guilt, in all of our shame, in the baggage that we carry, we have to listen to that promise. That this is the word God has made good on in Jesus. And he's done it for you. Take up that benefit. This is what God in Jesus Christ has established for us, his gift to us. And it is these benefits of sharing communion with God, of being divinely empowered by God, of being forgiven by God, that is to draw us away 
from that temptation to quit Jesus. Because there's nowhere else where this grace can be found. God's pledge, I will make a new covenant. I will establish a new covenant. This is what he has done. It's been fulfilled. And his word is pure. His word is true. And all those benefits are yours today. Allow those benefits to encourage you and to draw you on. Take full advantage of them. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we survey the vast benefits that are ours in the great high priest, Jesus Christ, it is certainly overwhelming. And Jesus has opened up the way to you, that we would walk with you, that we'd be forgiven by you, that we'd be empowered, that your word and your law would be written upon our hearts, that you would teach us to delight in it. And may we get lost in those benefits. Draw us into that. And with the daily pressures, the misery, different temptations and trials that point us to quitting Jesus, would we leave those behind? Help us, God. We know our own weakness. But when we look to you in our weaknesses, we find strength. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.